Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Every single one of us is trying to untangle our sense of self from the family that raised us. There's just no getting away from this. There's no escaping the family issues that any of us have. If you are raising a kid right now, maybe you have that moment that happens every so often in the practical household. It comes right after Jennifer and I have broken someone's heart concerning dessert or how late they can stay up or some other tragedy. When Jennifer and I have taken the full blast of our kids' collective disappointment and when we have no other response, we'll just kind of turn to each other and say, well... They'll need something to talk about with their therapist one day. There's no avoiding this work that we all have to do. And that's not merely a psychological or a therapeutic claim. It's a biblical one. You may or may not have noticed, but there are not many very, there are not very many model families in the Bible. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the founding fathers of the faith, they all seriously messed with their kids' heads. And I don't mean that they were just old-fashioned. I mean that even by ancient standards, they failed in disastrous ways that had real consequences. And throughout this series that we have been in and worship together, we have been looking at some of the most familiar images that we hold of God. And today, as we talk about God as our Father— I want to acknowledge something from the very beginning. I want to acknowledge that we are in fraught territory. It's not really my story to tell, and it's not directly related to our church, but this week I have seen firsthand how much physical pain and emotional pain some of us carry with images of our Father. And if your thoughts about your own family of origin, if they bring only smiles and laughter, then you can count yourself blessed in that but you are not off the hook. You are not exempt from the work of sorting out yourself in relationship to your family. Because one of the recurring themes in our current series is that the most dangerous idols are the ones that we find most agreeable. We know that every image that we have of God is an imperfect analogy. But some of those images seem so perfect to us that we don't even want to know how God is even better. I've said it before, I'll say it again. One of our superpowers as humans is that there is no gift from God so good that we can't make it into an idol. And so rather than holding up any one image as our idol that limits our view of God, throughout this series, we want to seek out the icons that can show us more of God. And there's a lot more going on with today's text that Kathy read to us from Galatians than what we captured in just a few verses that she read. If you're one of those people who really gets into uh, the nuances of translation and of comparing different versions of the Bible, then Galatians is the sort of book you'll find very rewarding. See, there's no single perfect translation of the Bible. Here at Dauphin Way, you'll often hear us most often read from the NRSV and the NIV, and I personally have a high opinion of the CEB translation, the Common English Bible. Those are the ones you'll hear most often here. I'll save the ins and outs of that for another day. But what's interesting for us is that in Galatians chapter 3, the chapter just before what Kathy read for our children today, all three versions that we usually use here make the same 
kind of controversial decision around a particular verse. All three of them go in chapter three, and I'm gonna start by, by giving it to you from the NIV. This comes from Galatians 3, chapter, uh, verses 24 through 25, where in that passage, Paul says, therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian for in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Paul goes on to say, so there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are heirs according to the promise. Maybe you've heard that last bit before, the bit about no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That's not the controversial part. The controversy, and bear with me if it feels like we're getting deep into the weeds, but I guarantee you that once upon a time there was a really loud and long argument somewhere between the translators here. The, the controversy is about where it says in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. Children is the word that the NIV uses and the NRSV, and the CEB. They all choose to say that in Christ, we are all children of God. I'm sure that sounds nice to you, not the least bit controversial. But if you look at a number of other translations, not just like the, the King James, but a lot of modern translations, you'll see that those versions use the word sons of God instead of children of God. And in the Greek manuscripts that we get our Bible from, the word there is a masculine noun, and sons of God is technically more accurate than that more neutral word, children. And I bet you are thinking, what's the big deal? Because as we just heard, a few verses later, Paul is going to say that in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Why does it matter if we say sons or children? He's not trying to be exclusive here. It's for that reason that the CEB, the NIV, the NRSV, all these translations we use, they made the very understandable choice to say children instead of sons. Because the point of this is that everyone belongs. It'd be too confusing to say that in Christ, females are sons of God. So let's just say children instead. It feels much more inclusive. But it's only more inclusive to our modern ears that think that things, think about things like male and female in terms of personal biology and personal identity rather than thinking of them in terms of social role and social function. Because in Paul's time, a son had a very particular and a very distinctive role in the social order. The son was the heir. The sons were the heirs. Sons were the only ones who could legally inherit a family's wealth, a family's name, and a family's history. So son was not just a characteristic of a person. It was a social role with privileges and responsibilities. And so when Paul wraps up Galatians 3 by saying, there is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female, you are all one in Christ. And if you belong in Christ, then you are heirs. He's not just saying, isn't it nice that God loves us all the same? Paul is saying, you have an inheritance. You aren't just a kid. If you were disenfranchised, if you were disinherited, you now have an inheritance. You are a son. Gentiles, you're the adopted heir. Slaves and servants, 
you are the adopted heir. Women, you are the adopted heir. And Paul makes it clear, by the way, Jews and freedmen and dudes as well, we're all adopted. None of us is the begotten heir of God. None of us is Jesus, but through Jesus, in Christ, every one of us doesn't just get a seat at the table. We have a stake in it all. We have an inheritance. We are the heirs to the king. So whenever we talk about family relations in the Bible, and especially when we look at the book of Galatians, we have to keep in mind a few things and demodernize our own way of thinking in the following ways. First, we have to remember that in the ancient biblical culture, family relationships were defined by function as much as feeling. A son, a father, a mother, a daughter, they had particular functions to serve. And we have to remember that Christians understood their relationship to God in these familial terms by creatively redefining them. It's a creative redefinition that says Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, now you're all sons of God. Now you're all heirs of the king. And finally, in this creative redefinition of our relationships, none of us has a natural claim on God. We're all adopted. Every one of us is included by pure grace. And all that's in the background that brings us to the pinnacle of Paul's argument in Galatians 4 that Kathy read to us. And here we are moving from the function and status of the heir to consider the work of the father. And what is the function of the father in the kingdom? And as Paul describes it, what connects God with the likeness of a father has nothing to do with the images of Father God that you might have seen on, from Michelangelo's frescoes or from William Blake. None of those famous pictures of Father God. I'm sure you've seen these pictures I'm talking about. The ones where the model that they used for God is the same one that Disney used for King Triton and the Little Mermaid. You know the pictures, the ones where the Father God actually looks a lot more like ancient statues of Zeus. That makes sense because all these famous pictures, the ones we have in our head when we think of a father God, these images became popular in the Renaissance when painters and discovered and sculptors rediscovered the techniques and writings of the Greco-Romans. They aren't biblical images of God. The ancient Israelites, of course, never made any paintings or statues of God because it was right there in the second commandment. You shall have no images of me. In fact, for the first 1,300 years of Christianity, believers would only allow themselves to depict Jesus in human form. They never dared to try and draw God the Father. But now we, in our minds, in our age, we have fixed in our mind this picture of the big, bare-chested, bearded guy who protects us primarily by disapproving of things and occasionally by smiting them. And if that image carries too much baggage for us, we may be tempted to replace that stern Father God with a kinder, gentler image of a tender God whose arms are like this cocoon where we can hide from everything that needs a good smiting. And still others of us are tempted to dismiss the image of a Father God altogether. When we hear someone talking about God, our Father, that sounds hopelessly out of date or entirely too limited or, or maybe even sexist to some of you. But for Paul, God's role as father 
has nothing to do with God representing some idealized version of masculinity. It is instead a statement about how God works and God's function and action in our lives. And for Paul, the father's fundamental function is to give the heirs freedom. I want you to hear that again. The father's function is the heirs freedom. That's the key insight that we get when we read Galatians 4. Paul has gone on at length to say that all of us are the adopted heirs. And now Paul is telling us what a difference that makes. Because you see, the church in Galatia was being torn apart by controversies over which of the Jewish laws the new Gentile converts needed to keep. And we've already heard Paul say in chapter 3 that these laws that came before Jesus, they were like a guardian. They were like the teacher in a Greek house who was given the job of laying down the rules for the children. He repeats that here in chapter four, when he says that when the heir is under age, he's no different than a slave, even if he technically owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. But everyone, everyone who's raised a child at least, knows that there comes a point, and usually several points, where you can't make all the decisions for them. There comes a time when you can't shame someone or discipline someone into doing something for their own good. There comes a time when they won't do the right thing just to please their parent any longer. And there comes a time when all of us had to make our own choices, take our own responsibility. And there comes a time in the life of every child when they'll have to do that without any external motivation. There comes a time when a child is going to face a scenario that they've never practiced for. And when that time comes, they may have a lot more freedom than they even wanted. And the role of a parent is to help them use that freedom and use it well. There's a famous story about Steve Jobs last year or so before he died. Jobs, of course, was the founding father of Apple Computers. And in his last year, as he was preparing to hand over the company that he had founded, and made into a juggernaut twice over, Job's most important piece of advice to his successors was never ask what I would do, just do what's right. Job's told everyone who would listen that he wanted Apple to avoid the trap of another company he had worked closely with, the the Walt Disney Company, which struggled for like 25 years after the death of its founding father, Walt Disney. Job said everyone spent all their time walking and talking and thinking about what would Walt do. And when Paul says to the Galatians, you are no longer a slave, but God has made you a child. And since you are a child, God has also made you an heir with a stake in all this. What he is saying is that it's time to let go of what the law says about circumcision. And it's time to claim the role that God has given you to do the people who do what is right. In the rest of the book, Paul will go on to make this point clear that God is our parent because God longs to give us freedom. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He'll say it again in verse 12, you were called to be free. And that calling comes from God, the father. The function of the father is the freedom of the heirs. The father is training the heirs to take responsibility for 
and to have a stake in and to make decisions on behalf of what they have inherited. This image of God as the father has nothing to do with XY chromosomes or feats of strength or growing a really intimidating beard. To say that God is our father is saying that God is the one who sets us free. God is the one who is giving us everything that we need to be able to freely choose what is right. And Paul will go on in Galatians to say that instead of looking for a law, we should freely choose, chase after love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul will say, these are the fruits of the Spirit. If you go after them against these things, there is no law. God is raising us to be a people who are free to chase after love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control wherever we might find them. Because against these things, there is no law. I wonder if the image of God as father has ever left you so entangled in cultural expectations or your own history that it left you feeling less free instead of more so. I wonder if you've ever been paralyzed by the fear that you might disappoint God, even by doing what seems right. We've said it from the beginning. Idols capture us. They paralyze us. They make us more dependent. They restrain us while idols captivate and leave us lost in wonder, love, and praise. And my prayer this morning is that every one of us will be able to know God and see God in a way that believes that God desires our freedom. As an entirely human parent, I'm quite sure I'm gonna give my kids lots to talk about someday, lots of restraints to work through, plenty that they're gonna have to work out. But the best I can do is equip them to work that all out without fear without worrying that they've betrayed me or their mother somehow by becoming who they were made to be. And our heavenly, perfect father has equipped us with so much more than any human parent could. Because if you are an heir, then God has given you a stake in the kingdom and God is giving you agency and responsibility and God is giving you authority and God is giving you more freedom than you are probably willing to believe. And I wonder what you would do if you felt truly free, free enough in every situation just to do what's right. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.